Uh, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. Uh, it's good to have you. If you're new with us, we love it that you've joined us today. Uh, it's already been mentioned by Brad, but uh, our Connect desk right outside the doors is where you can find everything you need to know about how to actually connect to our church and not just attend our church. So we'd love for you to do that and have conversations after the service with you. Uh, today, we have a privilege of getting to hear from my friend, Pastor Rick Eford. And so we've been in the book of Nehemiah. We're about a quarter, three quarters of the way through that book, rather, in the Old Testament. If you've missed any of that, you can catch up online, on our website, on our podcast, as well as we have a free study guide that's back at the Connect Desk. Uh, it has our, our graphic, the cover of it is uh, that you see on the screen. So go back and grab one of those. Even if you haven't been here, uh, you're just thinking, I want to catch up, that's uh, a great way to do that. It has study questions for each day and uh, each chapter. And so go through that, catch up on the book of Nehemiah as we get ready to close out the book. Uh, we have two more weeks after today in the book of Nehemiah, and then we have Easter on April 16th, so it'll take us all the way up to Easter, and so don't uh, miss that. Take advantage of that study guide as well. Uh, Pastor Rick, uh, some of you know, and, and some of you, he knows you because he's been here several times. He's been the pastor at Desert Springs Bible Church for 30 plus years in North Phoenix, and uh, Rick and Desert Springs have come alongside us as a church since the very beginning. And so Brad mentioned as well that we're a church plant. Essentially, that means we're a new church, uh, about two and a half years old. And at the very beginning, uh, Rick was one of the first people to reach out as another pastor in the city and just say, hey, we're praying for you. What else can we do? Uh, because starting a church, there's a lot that goes into that. And so they just came alongside in, in multiple ways at the very beginning. And then about maybe six months ago, uh, they became an advisory role for us as a church and, and for me as your pastor. And so uh, their pastor, Rick, and, and Caleb come alongside me. And, and we have informal discussions about things that go on. We, we have uh, more formal discussions about budget and leadership decisions and all these kinds of things. As a seasoned church in the valley, they come alongside us as a new church to help give us uh, guidance and wisdom as we go along. And so uh, a couple tangible ways we're partnering with them is uh, a Rocky Point mission trip that's coming up April 22nd and 23rd. You'll hear more about that at the end of the service. They're doing that trip. We're partnering with them in that. Uh, we've gone on conferences together. His wife, Emily, and my wife have connected, and she's here today. We love it that you're here, Emily. And um, I've preached there. Caleb, their other pastor, has preached here. And so all that to say, there's just a lot of connections, and, and we really do ministry together, even though we're, we're separate churches. They're in a similar series on Nehemiah right now. And so we're partnering together in that way as well. And so we love that Rick is here. Uh, one quick story about Rick uh, before he comes up is uh, I got to preach at Desert Springs several weeks ago, and they have two services. And after the second service, a couple came up to me and, and said, hey, I just, we just need some prayer because there's a lot of things going on in our lives. There's some generational sin and curses in our lives. And, and so we just had to flesh that out more and, and, and pray together. And I was just going to pray for them in the lobby and just talk through it briefly. And Rick comes along. And he just says, no, let's go over in this side room. And let's talk more about this. And so we go over to the side room. Uh, we've already had two services. I've already preached two services. That's, that's double what I'm used to, right? And so I'm, I'm a little tired. My stomach is growling. And I'm like, Rick, how long is this going to go, man? And uh, we're in this side room talking with this couple. And Rick just starts asking question after question after question and just listens. Uh, he just listens. He talks about a recovery class that they have during the week to follow up with this couple. Uh, but he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just send them to a program or to a class. He gives the guy his phone number 
Uh, the guy wasn't a Christian, and he just said, I'm going to follow up with you this week, and we're going to talk more about Jesus and the gospel, and I'm going to call you on the phone, and I want to talk through that with you and pray through this with you and answer any question you may have. And this is about a 45-minute discussion when my stomach is growling. And I tell you that because when I think of a pastor, I think of Rick Eford. Uh, he is a shepherd at heart. That's what a pastor is, in case you didn't know. Someone who shepherds God's flock, God's people. And, and as a church, a young church, a new church that wants to have more pastors and raise up more pastors, I, I can't think of a better example than, than Pastor Rick. In my life, uh, I've seen him in, in, in the lives of others as well. When I need something, I call, I call Rick. Uh, sometimes my wife says, what will we do without Rick? Uh, and I say, I don't know. He's been a true blessing in our lives, in our church's lives, even if you don't realize that. And so all that to say, I love that Rick is here so you can hear from him as he speaks the truth from Nehemiah. And so would you welcome Rick? Give him a PBC welcome. Well, let's pray and go home. That's what I feel like after that, because anywhere from here is downhill, Tim. <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy. You set the bar like way up here. And usually when people say, I want to tell you a story about Rick, it doesn't go that positively. <laughs> so I'm always cringing like, oh my gosh, what are they going to say? <laughs> and sometimes it's true and sometimes it's uh, whatever. But you know, it, it really is. I think the last time I was back here with you all was when we brought our elders down to pray for you and to commission the work here at Phoenix Bible Church. And it is good to be in an advisory capacity I would advise you, Tim, not to put Tara on that spot any longer with those kind of names. She, she knocked it out of the park. Well, no, the, we'll talk later. So anyway, Tara, you knocked it out of, out of the park. But I don't understand what's so hard about Ezra. Okay, that's pretty easy. Uh, your only one names you're going to hear from me today are Ezra and probably Nehemiah. But thank you, Tara, for saving my bacon. I don't have to go there. So it is, it is truly great to be with you all today. And this book of Nehemiah is a marvelous source of input and instruction. And one of the things we're going to see today in this is the centrality and the essential nature of God's word to what his building program is. And it's way beyond building a wall or even rebuilding a temple. It's about rebuilding the hearts and lives of people. And so uh, God uses his word in amazing ways. There's a, I was sitting at a banquet, I'm listening to this guy, and he's sharing his story. Well, all of us have a story, right? And he's sharing this story how he was in the, in the military, and there are a group of men and women, or men, who came to distribute scriptures like New Testaments. They are the Gideons, and they were passing out these New Testaments to service men and women. And this guy was, he didn't know Jesus yet, and so he took one of these, these New Testaments, but he had a different use for it. Uh, what he said he found is the place where he was in the world, one of the things he did to pass his idle times is he smoked a lot of weed, but he couldn't get any papers. It was just really hard to come by. He could get the weed, but he didn't know how to get the papers. And he looked at this Gideon New Testament. He said, hmm, th those pages look like, I'll bet that they are the right size for rolling a joint, and they're the right size for, you know, you know, and so he took the New Testament, and instead of reading it, as it was intended to do, he would tear it a page, he'd roll a joint, he'd smoke it, and then the next time he wanted to do it, do the same thing. And before too long, he had actually gone through the whole New Testament 
not reading it, but still, you know. And so he goes to the chaplain and he says, you know what? Do you have any more of those New Testaments? Those little books that they gave out. And he says, well, yeah, but didn't you get one? He says, yeah, but what'd you do with it? Well, at least he was honest and he told the chaplain what he had done. And so the chaplain's pretty shrewd. The chaplain says, well, you know what? I'll give you another one. I do have some extras, but you've got to promise me that you'll at least read it. That's what it's for. I want you to read it because there's things in here that would really help you. And he says, I promise, I promise, Padre, I'll, I'll read the, the New Testament now. And he did. He would tear out a page, he would read it, and he would roll a joint and he would smoke it. And he did that up to about the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, he read these words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And it struck him. And he says, I need that. I need that more than I need wheat. And he gave his life to Jesus. And at the time that I heard him, he was pastoring a church in western North Carolina. And it's amazing to see how God can use his word. And one of the things that we see in the passage that we're going to look at today in Nehemiah chapter 8 is, again, the centrality and the essential nature of God's word. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, Verse 12, it says, the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. You could also say in a modern vernacular, it's sharper than any surgeon's scalpel. Because it says it is able to divide between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Understand the motivations that we have. The word of God is not just a book. It's not just a history lesson. It's not just a theological treatise. It's, it's not just a good philosophy to live by. The Word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any surgeon's scalpel. And God can use this to literally change lives as he did with that pastor, as he has done with me, as he does with you. And so we want to look at that today and see how he did that historically. As we read from the book of Nehemiah, we see that primarily it is about a building program, at least that's what on the surface it looks like. There is an individual, Ezra, who has gone back to the land under the direct decree of, of Cyrus the king, the Persian king, and his role was to really reinstitute the law. Then 14 years later, Nehemiah comes along, and under the king of Artaxerxes, he receives permission to go back and begin the rebuilding project of the wall. And so Nehemiah has been there, and that's been a part of what's been looked at. But one of the things that we're going to see today is that it's not just about a building project of bricks and stone and mortar and beams over gates. It was that, but all along, God's primary intent was this to be a building project of lives, of people, of men, and of women. Even in 1 Peter, it says this, that you and I, in Christ, are living stones, we are being built together as a holy household for Christ, Christ being the cornerstone, and each of us as followers in Jesus are individual living stones that the Spirit of God is working together to build a holy habitation for himself. So it's not just about a location, it's about the work that God's doing through people. In the text in Nehemiah chapter 8 that Tara did read very well, verses 1 through 8, 
we see a number of things, but one of the key issues that we're going to see is that understanding and practicing, not just hearing it, but hearing it and living it, understanding and practicing God's word is essential for personal and societal transformation. Let me say that again. Understanding and practicing God's word is essential for personal and societal transformation. We see in this book and in the first chapters that right before it, it's in the seventh month that come. The month was Tishri, and basically it was equivalent to what we would consider to be September and October, overlapping those words. But it was the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. Now understand quite a bit of time has gone through. From Nehemiah, you learn first that Nehemiah first hears about all of this in the month of uh, Chislev, which is November or December. He first heard at that point that the walls were broken down and Jerusalem was in derision. It was a, it was a reproach among the people and it was not a safe place to live. Well, he begins to pray. And in the first month of the year in the Jewish calendar, which is Nisan, which is our March or April, which is the same month in which Passover takes place, he had been praying for months, and then God gives him liberty to talk to the king, to Artaxerxes, and God grants him favor to receive the, the permission to be gone, and he was really a critical part of Artaxerxes' cabinet. He was like second in charge, the cupbearer to the king. And he was one who was given a leave of absence to go back to Jerusalem. He also gave him letters to be able to purchase the materials to build this wall from other nations that were around. So God granted him great favor. God's hand was upon him, and I think a big part because he trusted in God. And he sought to do what God's will was, and he courageously followed. So this is over a spirit period of months. Now in the seventh month, basically what we're talking about, September, November, about nine months after all this had started, it says the people gathered as one man in the square of the water gate. And they told Ezra to bring the book of the law. Now, that would especially be the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law that had been given through Moses to the children of Israel. And we see multiple places that it says here, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what was heard, any boy was of age to be able to understand. You see again in verse 3, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. You see in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people. He was on a platform above where the people were for vision. And understand, I don't know how many people were in this gathering, but in the city, in the land at that point, there were between thirty and 50,000 people. So it's very likely this was a large gathering of individuals. He opened it and all the people stood. I loved it when you stood, stayed standing, stood standing, whatever. When you stayed standing for the reading of the word of God, that's a, that's a mark of respect. It's a mark. And they did that in this culture as well. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped. You see in verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense they taught them so that the people understood the reading. So I think there was a proclamation, and then there were other people who were taught in the word that went about and made sure the individuals understood what they were hearing. And you see even beyond that, multiple times in chapter 8, where they read the law, they read the law, they read the law, they taught the law, they taught the law, they helped people to understand. And that is essential to, as I said, personal and societal transformation. 
You know, there's a pattern that's in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And that's this. In, in a conquered nation of the day, oftentimes what would happen is there would be a covenant with the ruling authority. And here's what would go through. Commentators have said the covenant was to be read at regular intervals. And that's in essence what they were doing with their covenant with God in chapter 8. Then their sin was confessed. In chapter 9, you see exactly that's what happens with the children of Israel to God. And in chapter 10, obedience was then proclaimed or promised. And you see that in, in Nehemiah. Chapters 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 follow that pattern. See, Ezra was a teacher. He had come back to reestablish the law. As I said a few minutes ago, 14 years before Nehemiah. Here comes Ezra. Ezra comes in along with a guy named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was responsible for rebuilding of the temple. So they were reestablishing the law, rebuilding the temple, and those building projects basically had begun well before Nehemiah had come in. Now, Nehemiah comes 14 years later and primarily was focused on building the wall. And that's what's been talked about up to this point. But we see something very clearly that Nehemiah is not the central character in chapter 8. Even though it's Nehemiah's book, the central character is Ezra. Ezra was a teacher, a scribe, a priest. And he's there and he does this. Now, I love a passage that tells me a lot about Ezra in the book of Ezra, which immediately precedes the book of Nehemiah. And it says this, The good hand of God was upon Ezra. And there are three reasons we see that. The good hand of God was upon Ezra, for one, he purposed in his heart to study the law, to obey its principles, and to teach its precepts to others. Ezra purposed in his heart to know the law, to study it, to practice its principles, and to teach its precepts to others. See, it's not just enough to know this book. There are a lot of people who are, as I would put it, educated beyond their obedience, especially in Bible church environments. I've seen that. I've seen it in Dallas, Texas, where I was in seminary. I've seen it in Phoenix, Arizona. I've seen it in other places where people especially run from one Bible study to another. They highly value the study of God's word. But if you ask them to get involved and to serve, well, no, I don't have time. Or you watch someone who has studied the Word and studied the Word and studied the Word and they've gone from, from study to study to study and perhaps from church to church to church and quite candidly, they look like they've been baptized in a bowl of, or a barrel of pickle juice. They're so sour. They're so critical. They're critical of other people. They don't teach the word the right way. They don't do it. And oftentimes that critical spirit is on a form. It's not on the function of even teaching the word. They certainly aren't in a position to teach it to others. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people who are really, really educated in what this says. But instead of being a humble person, they're arrogant. Knowledge puffs up if knowledge is by itself. It's like the person who says, I'm going to be really healthy, I'm going to be really strong, so I'm just going to eat. And I'm going to eat, and I'm going to eat, and I'm going to eat, and I'm not going to exercise. You know what's going to happen in a situation like that, right? Is that person going to be healthy? 
No, I mean, when they say they sit around the house, they sit around the house, if you get my drift. So, but they're, they're too busy with their nose stuck in here. And as it said, they're probably too heavenly minded. They're of no earthly good. Ezra was not that type of person. Ezra purposed in his heart to study the word. Yes, study it. God bless you for studying. God bless you for keeping the word central in the, the proclamation, the worship service that you do, for being a light and central phoenix. God bless you for that. Keep that up. Don't miss that. Do it in community groups and in study groups and mentoring and discipleship. That's awesome. But make sure you understand that the word of God is not given just to expand our intellect. It's given to change our lives. And if we're not engaging and practicing the word of God in our relationship with him, in our relationship with each other, in our relationship to the world, then we're missing mark and then we also need to be teaching others as well we'll come back to that in just a few minutes the word of God is living and active and powerful to change and we ought to be lighthouses of the word of God you know there are many ways to explain that but fewer are stronger than a changed life because of the word there was a young man who grew up in Puerto Rico he did not grow up in a good, positive environment. He was one of about 15 children, and that's not bad in of itself. But his mother and father both practiced witchcraft and spiritism. There were so many different things, and he was abused from early on, spiritually and emotionally and even physically. He said that his dad would throw him in a pigeon coop as a young boy, stripped completely naked, and the pigeons were all over, and they were scratching and pecking and flying and terrifying him as a young boy. Is it any wonder that he continued to get into trouble? And as he got into trouble, his mother used to call him the son of Satan because she was empowered, I think, by Satan in many of her trances and drug-induced types of issues. And she shipped him off because he was incorrigible to her brother who lived in New York City. The young man's name is Nicky. And Nicky got involved at his at his uncle's house, but he was too much of a handful. He's so filled with hate that he got tied into a gang. The gang was the Mau Mau's, named after the African tribe that is very, very bloodthirsty. And within six to eight months, he rose to prominence as the warlord of that gang. He was outstripping everybody else because of the hatred that he had in his heart and what he wanted to do to others. He wanted to make them feel, these are his words, he wanted to make them feel as he had. Well, then there was a preacher that came to town. His day was David Wilkerson. And David Wilkerson came and heard about the Mau Mau's. He heard about Nikki as the leader and he began to try to reach out to them. And Nikki wanted nothing of it. He had never heard any of this stuff. He wanted nothing to do with it. He cursed him. He spit at him. He slapped him in the face. He threatened to take his life. And yet David Wilkerson continued to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Nikki, Jesus loves you. And Jesus will always love you. And even as he was threatened with death, he said to Nikki, he said, you could cut me into a thousand pieces and spread them out on the street and every piece would be saying to you, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And that like rocked his world. He had never heard anything like that. He had never seen anything like that. Here is someone who is a preacher, some hill, in his words, some hillbilly preacher. And he was not being intimidated by the warlord of the Mau Mau's. 
So David Wilkerson established that he was going to do an outreach, and he rented a boxing arena, and he invited them and even sent a bus for them to come. And they came that night, and the Spirit of God had already been working in Nikki's life because he said when he was alone at home, the loneliness was so oppressive, it was like a seductive woman that was crawling into his chest and was eating him alive. He was feeling guilt about things that had been done. So he comes to this crusade where he hears that there's a God who loves him. For God so loved the world that he gave. He had his son crucified. And Wilkerson said he was a man. He lived it out and he showed his love in incredible ways. And God broke through to Nikki Cruz that night. And he prayed for forgiveness to the one and only to whom he could receive forgiveness. And he said, for the first time in my life, I told someone that I loved them when I said, Jesus, I love you. And his life began to change. Even immediately that night, David Wilkerson had asked Nikki Cruz and a number of the Mau Mau's to take the offering. Now, you know what that usually would mean? Guys in a gang, they're going to take the offering. They're going to take the offering. And so they collect all this money and they're giving people the evil eye like you need to contribute. I'm sure you all will do that when you take the offering today, right? You're going to have your biggest, gnarliest people, and they're going to put the evil face on them. And if you don't do this, yeah, I know you won't do that. But that's what they did. They had a great offering. So as they were going backstage, they saw an exit door. And the thought first went through his head, I, I think we ought to go. But they did, and they stayed. They gave the money. And later on, the Spirit of God began to work so much so that among Nikki Cruz and the members of the Mau Mau's that came to Christ that night, they took their guns, they took their knives, they took their weapons, and they marched down to the police station, and they turned them in. Some of the police officers reportedly said, if we had known that they were coming, we would have probably shot them on sight because we were thinking that there was a war coming. But they didn't. There was a testimony. God is changing our lives. We're moving away from the old pattern. Nicky was living with his girlfriend at the time, and as fearless as David Wilkerson had been, there was one thing that I remember reading that he had said. He was fearful to go to Nicky and say, look, you're living with your girlfriend. That needs to change because the scripture says that you shouldn't be having sex with someone that you're not married to. And he expected a strong reaction, but instead, Nicky Cruz said, really? Why have you never told me this before? If that's what God says then that's what I'll do. Now, that's a transformed life. And Nikki Cruz today, I would encourage you to look it up. YouTube some of his testimony. Look it up on YouTube. Look it up on the Internet. Don't do it during the rest of the sermon, please. Okay, I know you and I know the phones and all that stuff. Don't go there yet, please. But it is an incredibly intriguing story. I invite you to do it. As Emily and I looked at some of the testimonies, actually tears were coming to our eyes of the goodness of God's grace. Of a life transformed because the Word of God is living and active and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword. It's able to judge between the thoughts and the intentions and even the motives of the heart. It's transformative. Any personal and societal transformation, the Word of God is essential to that process. Are you allowing the Word of God to transform you as you take it in, as you study it? as you practice what you learn, and as you seek to teach that to others. 
You know, this is not all of the passage. We see beyond that that there's amazing things that God does through some, some uh, celebrations that they have. First of all, in verses 9 and following, you see uh, the Feast of Trumpets. And then you see following that 14 days later, they begin the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. I'm saying that very carefully, booths, not booze, all right? It's a little hard to understand that at different times, just in the spoken word. But what was this Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths? It was to remind the people that they were in Egypt, and as they came out of Egypt, that God provided for them, even though they had to live in temporary shelters for a while. And you begin to see that the Word of God is still central in that, But one of the key things that we see about this institution of these celebrations, which the Jewish people were much better about than Christian churches today. You know, we don't know how to celebrate very well. And they did. They would celebrate good things. And here's the basic principle. Remembering how God has worked in the past encourages to trust him and follow him today. Remembering how God has worked in the past encourages us to trust him and to follow him today. And that's exactly what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. They were to say, look, you build for seven days. You're going to build these structures and you're going to live in them. And, And that's a reminder of the fact that there was a time and a season when following Christ, when not following Christ, but when following the Lord, when following Yahweh, meant that we were in temporary quarters before we got to build our own homes. And it's a celebration. It's a great thing of remembering God's faithfulness through all those times. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, it says this. These things were written about the history of Israel that we might learn from their example. So it's, again, it's not just a history lesson. It's something even in the recording of the Word of God that we might learn from the example of those that have gone before us. I want to just give you some examples of this just real quickly. You know, you guys are a little over two years, two years in what, Tim? Two and a half years. So when you look back at what God has done in the last two and a half years, celebrate that. Remember those things and celebrate those things. I had the privilege of being with you, and some of you weren't there at the time, the last day that you met in the church. And God had opened a door. I remember, Tim, you and I talked about this. We prayed about this. Tim was saying, where are we going to meet? What are we going to do? And then God opened this great facility for you to be able to meet in. Remember those things. Celebrate them. You know, this year in September, we will celebrate at Desert Springs Bible Church 40 years of God's faithfulness. I haven't been around all 40 of those years. It's amazing to watch what God has done. And even as Caleb, our new senior pastor, when I passed the reins off to him about a year and a half ago, he has been meeting with people who were around at that time, and they told stories after stories after stories of how God provided to make a land payment when they had no idea how they were possibly going to make that. How God has provided financially, God has provided personally, God has provided spiritually through all of those days. It's good to celebrate what God has done in the past. Because it gives us the courage to trust him and to follow him now and in the future. When you look at what this said about Ezra in Ezra 7.10, for the good hand of God was upon him. I'm going to break that down and take it to the New Testament with you for a second. For God said in his heart, Ezra said in his heart to study the word, to do it, and to teach its precepts to others. 
in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And all these verses that I'm going to give you right now are from Timothy. That's a good name, don't you think, Pastor? I think that's a great name. Your mother and father were so inspired when they did that. But Paul also had a protege, a young pastor who pastored predominantly in Ephesus, but who also accompanied Paul many times. And in 1 and 2 Timothy, especially 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to him that he might know how to conduct himself in the household of faith, how things should be done in the church. And so we see this paralleling that pattern with Ezra. Ezra first purpose to study the law of God. Well, notice what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4.11. I want to encourage you to read this. Uh, write it down if you want to and go back and look at it later. you got a great study guide. This is awesome. But you may want to just jot it down and come back and look at these because these are not in here. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 through 16, Paul tells Timothy, make it a priority to teach and preach the word. Because by paying close attention to teaching and preaching the word, you will ensure the salvation both for yourself and for your people. It's essential to societal and personal transformation today just as it was then. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, it says, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. I got to tell you, that's a part of it. It's a long story and longer than I have time to give to you today personally. But this was a key part of God's direction in me from leaving a plan to go to dental school and to, to instead shift gears, shift tracks to go into ministry. It was a night in which I was praying for God's direction. And this has only happened to me one time in my life. Never since, never before. And I'm praying, God, what do you want me to do? I want to serve you. I want to do this. I think that's in a, in a business and professional way. And, and yet, what do you want me to do? And as I opened my eyes, there was a scriptures on the bed in front of me. And there are only these words, like someone had taken a divine highlighter and just marked it, preach the word. Preach the word. Like nothing else existed. And then I end up at a seminary years later, a year later, and I'm sitting in chapel, and across the banner that they have at the front of the chapel is, in Greek, preach the word. God's telling Tim, he's telling those of us who follow him, it's not just those who are pastors, we need to preach the word. We need to, we need to teach the word of God. We need to do it with passion. Peter says this, if you're gifted in speaking, all of us are gifted. Some more serving, some more speaking. But he says, if you're gifted in speaking, then preach and teach as it were with the very oracle, as you're proclaiming the very oracles of God. Do it understanding that it's God's spirit that is using this in miraculous ways. Let's believe that he wants to transform us and the world through his word. Let's take it seriously. Unfortunately, too many of us just feel like, well, we come on Sunday morning, we'll, we get a 35, 40-minute sermon. I'm good. I'm good to go. No, you're not. Take time to get a cup of coffee and just read the Word on your own. There is a, an abundance of good Bible teaching out there. Avail yourself of it. Study the Word. The second thing that he says is, and do it. Practice it. It's not just knowing it. We want to be educated not beyond our obedience, but commensurate with it. In 1 Timothy chapter, in, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says this, verses 5 and 7. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a sound mind. 
The goal of our instruction is not more information. It's life transformation. Let's live it. Let's practice it. Because only as people see the congruence of those two things are they willing to follow. And that's the next piece. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, The things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, teach others also who will be able to teach others beyond them. I loved when I was driving out to Phoenix in 1978. I was listening. I was coming on to become a pastor of youth and discipleship. Camelback Bible Church was another sister church. And I was going to be responsible for discipleship. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe I ought to listen to some tapes or some CDs or it was way before podcasts. So I'm listening to a series of tapes by Charles Stanley. And in it, he talked about a man who was a recovering addict who had come to Christ off the streets, sat in the front row oftentimes in their services, listened, took notes. And then after a season, he sort of disappeared. He wasn't around. And so Charles Stanley said that he saw him on the street and he said, hey, man, I've been missing you. Where, where have you been? He said, oh, when you're upstairs, you know, I found a room down in the basement and I just took some guys with me that I knew from the streets and, and I've been discipling them. What? How do you know enough to disciple them? He says, I don't know. I just figure as long as I stay ahead of them, we're good. I love that spirit. As long as I stay ahead of them, we're okay. And he also knew where he could go to ask questions when he didn't know something. That's the right spirit. That's the right perspective is to see this. You know, God's word really is powerful. And it changes lives and empowers us to overcome so much. You know, there's two women that are very recognized for their Bible studies. Uh, one is Beth Moore, and my wife Emily leads a group of probably about 40 women at our church through Beth Moore Studies, and it's been so productive to get into the Word and learn it. But i got to tell you one of the things that's there that I do know is true. I don't know all the details. don't need to. But Beth Moore is coming out of a time of recovering from some significant abuse in her life. And through the word, God is healing those abuses. It's shaped her. It's marked her. But she turns to him as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals and continues to. There's another woman that was very instrumental in my wife's life. Her name is um, Kay Arthur, who preset Bible studies. Kay Arthur is still preaching the word, teaching the word at 88 or 89. Incredible to see this woman continuing on. We watched a video just the other night of one of her more recent Bible studies. But before she knew Christ, she was very promiscuous. There was a hole in her life that she sought to fill with sex indiscriminately with numbers of people. God has filled the hole in that heart through the love that surpasses all other loves, the truest of all loves, the purest of all loves, and the love of Jesus Christ. And she's purposed in her heart to study the law and to practice its principles and to teach them to others. What a great example. Another example in my life is my grandfather. We called him Papa, And... He's the man that I'm named after. My name is not, it doesn't matter, but it's not really Rick. That's what most people know me as, but I'm named after my grandfather. 
And there's such a heritage in his life. He's a man who, who only had a sixth grade education formally. And yet he was an incredible student. He was a student of many things. He was a contractor, builder, a, a student of business, uh, but also a student educationally. He ended up serving on the local school board for many years. Now think about that. Someone with only a sixth grade formal education serving as the chair many years of the school board. But he also became very, very enamored and impressed with teachings of the Word of God. And one of the things that really drew his attention was the, the teaching of Christ's return. He believed that Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime. And the more he studied, the more he was convinced of that. And he lived accordingly. He's one who, when I decided I was going to go to seminary, he, um, he said, I want to invest in you. And so I want to pay for your tuition and for your books and you're in seminary. And believe me, that was a huge benefit. But it came with a price. He wanted me every time I came home to come and give him somewhat of a shareholder's report because he wanted to learn what I was learning. And he also wanted to make sure that I wasn't getting any sideways because the school we were going to was different than the denomination that we grew up in. And so I told him one time, he said, well, is there anything, what are you doing with books? And, and I said, well, I need a set of Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer's systematic theology. Now, I went to Dallas Seminary. That's where Tim went as well. Uh, and he was the first president of the seminary. And he had this set of systematic theologies about this many volumes. It was, it was impressive and it was very verbose. In other words, way too wordy. So we had to slog through this. I said, well, I need to get this set, but it's like ridiculous amount for us, $150 or $200 at the time, which was like way out of sight for a working seminary student. And he said, you know what? I think I can help you out. He took his pipe out of his mouth and turned around from the chair, the easy chair he was in, and he says, I'll tell you what, why don't you take my set? I've read the man, and he's sound. Here is a guy with a sixth grade education passing judgment on the, the orthodoxy of the founding pastor or president, what is it, president of Dallas Theological Seminary. I got to tell you, I've gotten rid of a lot of my books. There's some other people that I've given copies to that I now have electronically. That is one set I will never give away. I look at it and I see notes in the margin and I see where he's recorded things that God was doing in his life. He was a student of the word, but he was also one who sought to practice it before he taught others its principles. You know, in his older years, as he retired, I'd come home and he'd say, come on down with me. Come on down to the jail. Because on Sunday night, we go down and we distribute Gideon Testaments and we share the good news of Jesus with the men that are in the jail. They had women that went to share it with the women, but he was focused on the men. And he said, you know, we've had, and he gave me the number. I don't remember it today, but it was way more than 100 men who had prayed to receive Christ as a result of them simply going to the jails, sharing the scriptures, and talking with his men. There's a God who loves you. And though we are sinners, all of us, he has given his life through his son Jesus to die in our place on that cross and that anybody that believes in him will never perish, but will be forgiven and will have eternal life. Like Ezra, he set his heart to study the word, to practice its principles, and only then to teach others its precepts.
I thank God for Phoenix Bible Church. I thank God for the leadership that you have here. I don't know a lot of you, but those of you that I've met had the privilege to be with. I've been with Tim in different places. I've been with Chad in class, had the privilege of, of teaching him. Or Zach, I'm sorry. Chad's too, but Zach. And, you know, what a privilege it is to partner with you all. God is doing a great work through you. But he will only do as great a work through you as you allow him to do in you. Because our lives need to match what we proclaim. You're coming up on an Easter Sunday. This is an incredible opportunity to reach out to friends and to neighbors so that they might come and hear the good news of Jesus. I know I have recommended to other people to come here. I would encourage you to do the same thing. But the biggest thing that people see is literally they don't care what you believe until they know how much you care. And that's one of the focus that should be here. Let's study the word. Let's practice its principles. And let's teach those to others as God gives us the opportunity. Would you pause with me and pray and pray that this becomes a reality? Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the men and women who go by the name of Phoenix Bible Church. I thank you for the men and women who have been here, who've invested prior to this time, who are here now. And I thank you in advance for those who will come here, who will know of you, who will grow in you, and who will teach others also. Father, I, I look forward to being a part and just watching what you do over the next years these individuals are faithful to you and who not only ask you to bless them personally, but the work that you've given them to do. Father, use them in a mighty way to make a difference in this part of the valley and beyond. I pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.